So we're just going to pick up right at the beginning of the text. It starts in verse 57. So right after Mary has now um, taken off and left Elizabeth after her visit, after her song, it says in verse 57, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy uh, to her, and they rejoiced with her. Okay, so remember that for much of her pregnancy, Elizabeth had been um, secluded and had spent time away from everybody else. And so, my Bible's falling. And so for a lot of her relatives, this was probably a huge surprise. This is a great joy. The social stigma of getting this old without being able to have kids now has, and um, of being childless like this has been removed. Um, but there's a second level here is that they had a boy. Now, this is really weird and messed up to us. Uh, 21st century Westerners. But let me read you what was the common practice in the day. One commentator says this. He says, When the time uh, of the birth was near at hand, friends and local musicians gathered near the house. When the birth was announced uh, and it was a boy, the musicians broke into song and there was a universal congratulation and rejoicing. If it was a girl, the musicians went away silently, uh, silently and regretfully away. So, as messed up as that is to us, they had a boy, and so everybody in this culture would have seen this extra level of rejoicing. So not only did Mary, I'm sorry, Elizabeth and Zachariah have this kid, they had a boy, um, and so all of the family would have been rejoicing. Um, it continues, 59. It says, And on the eighth day uh, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. So, um, after he's born, uh, eight days later, just like the Torah says, they all got together for the circumcision, just like, um, you know, the law of Moses commands. And at the time of the circumcision was when they would have named the baby. And so, um, as they come to name the baby, they all decide, well, let's, uh, let's name the kid um, after the father, right? Which was the common practice in the day. But the mother, Elizabeth, says, no, 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 we're going to call him John. And everybody is super confused. Why call him John? Well, because the angel told them to call him John. That's why. And so they're like, no, 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 she must be crazy. So we're going we're gonna to make signs to the father, um, to Zechariah, and we're going to figure out what's going on here. So they use some sort of sign language. Remember, what I said before is when the angel um, spoke to him in the temple, it said, the angel said to him, because you don't believe me, you're going to be mute, which also could mean deaf. It means deaf or mute or could be both. The word is very fuzzy. And so uh, this is probably one of the indicators that he was mute and deaf. We don't really know. So they hand him a writing tablet, which was not, not an iPad, right, like we have right now, but, um, <laughs> you know, like this one that I'm actually teaching off right now. Um, the writing tablet would have been just this piece of clay that you could kind of scratch in, wet clay, and you could scratch in it and then kind of wipe it over like an Etch-a-Sketch. And so he writes in it, no, 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 his name is going to be John. And then look at what it says in verse uh, 63. And, you know, after they saw that, they all wondered. Um, the, that's the ESV translation. In the Christian Standard Bible, another version we use sometimes, it says they were all amazed, right? This Greek word for amazed or wondered or whatever it is, is one of Luke's favorite words. And what it means is that they were blown away. Um, Luke uses this word all the time in the book of Luke and in the book of Acts, 
where God does something absolutely amazing, and then all the onlookers are floored. They're blown away. Uh, it's, it happens here first in this miraculous birth of John to these two very older people. And so they named this kid John instead of Zachariah because the angel told them to. And naming your son in the ancient world was a huge deal. Um, we, we talked about this before when we said that he didn't get to name the kid, but it was the custom to name the eldest after the father. And not getting to do this was a sign to Zachariah and to Elizabeth that this kid belongs to God and this kid does not belong to you. And it's the same thing when we read about um, Jesus being named uh, instead of being named Joseph or, you know, something like that. He, the, these parents do not get to name these two kids because these two kids belong to the Lord. All right, keep going. Verse 64. Uh, let's see. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loose and he spoke blessing God and fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about throughout all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him. And so the miracle, as soon as he's done now, um, as soon as the child is named and all this, all of a sudden, now Zechariah could talk. There's the miracle. Gabriel predicted, the angel predicted that this is exactly what would happen. And when the neighbors saw all of these circumstances, right, the naming, the, the deaf and mute and whatever, you know, that going away, these super old people having this baby, the neighbors fall into what we call the fear of the Lord. They fall into awe and word spread. Sorry, this became sort of the talk of the town. Everyone wondered what is this kid, John, going to end up being? Because kids are not normally born with these circumstances. So, yeah, got to have my Coke while I preach, right? Um, so kids are not normally born into these circumstances. And so everybody knows, man, something is up here. And so it's at this moment that Zachariah now bursts into song. So we don't know how this happened. Uh, we don't know exactly if he sat down and he wrote this down or if he just started you know, freestyling or whatever it was. But look at verse uh, 67. Look what it says. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he prophesied, saying, So just like Elizabeth was um, in verse 41, now we're told that uh, Zechariah now is filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we said this meant is that you're filled with the Holy Spirit in a way that you've surrendered your life to his control. And so the Holy Spirit now is calling the shots. Luke wants us to know that what we're about to read here, the Benedictus, is no ordinary song. The Lord is behind it. And so a lot like Mary's song, because Zechariah was also, um, he was a priest, he would have known the scriptures very well. This song is going to sound a lot like parts of the Old Testament. And that was kind of the whole point of last week's sermon was Mary was so saturated in the gospel from reading uh, the Old Testament that her song, as she wrote it, sounded a lot like Hannah's song, sounded a lot like other parts of the Psalms. Remember, it said that she ripped off at least 11 different books of the Old Testament when she wrote her song because she was so soaked in the scriptures. We're going to see the same thing here as we read this song of Zechariah. So we'll start the song now in verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. So notice the song begins with this communal focus. This is very common in the Bible, especially in the book of Luke, is this is there's no this is ancient Near Eastern world. The focus generally is not an individual level. It's not me, it's about us. So that's the first thing he says is he's the um 
Uh, he's visited and redeemed his people, right? So that's what he's thankful for, these two things. First, that God has visited his people communally. So in the fall, in Genesis chapter 3, we were separated uh, from God, from the creator that we were meant to be in communion with. And we long for his presence. It's what we all need. But how can we, who are sinners, be visited now by a perfectly holy God. He can't be around our sin. And this is how it's happened. God has, it says here, he's not only visited us, but he's done it by redeeming his people. So redemption is language from the slave market, right? God has paid the price to free his people from their bondage. Um, The great example in this of the Old Testament, from the Old Testament, is the Exodus story, right? This is the pinnacle of the entire Old Testament is the Exodus story, where the people were, um, were made slaves in Egypt, and God showed up in a very powerful way, and through the plagues and through his mighty works and his, you know, the mighty wonders of the plagues, his people were set free and then brought into the promised land. And um, that example uh, from the Exodus then is picked up in the New Testament, and what the New Testament writers say is, look, that was great, but what God did on a small scale there just for his people in Israel now, he does for on a much bigger scale for the, all the people of God as that's expanded, right? And so um, what he does in the Exodus, that sort of redemption is accomplished on a much larger scale in the New Testament. And the book of Luke then plays out how this is going to happen. But the song now continues with that same theme here of redemption in the next verse. Verse 69, And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. So first, this horn of salvation. In the Old Testament, the horn was a symbol of strength. Um, In our culture, I don't know what we do, maybe arms or something like that. But the idea is God has all the strength in the world, and he can do anything that he wants to do. And what does he choose to do with that strength is he chooses to save his people. And it happens just like he promised David. Now, um, this comes from one of the most important chapters in the Bible. And I talk about this chapter a lot because it really is one of the big pinnacle moments in the story of the gospel that we see in the Bible. It's 2 Samuel chapter 7. And here's what happens in 2 Samuel chapter 7. is David one day is looking in his house. He's looking around. He's like, hey, this is a pretty nice house. You know, I got my guitar on the wall and my speakers and, you know, whatever, my little practice guitar. And I got some nice stuff. And the house is built out of stone. My house isn't stone, but you know what I mean? Like, this is a pretty nice place to live. And he's looking out across town, and he sees the tabernacle, and he realizes, how come I've got this nice house, but God is living in a tent? That's not really fair. So he goes to the prophet, and he says to the prophet, hey, dude, I want to build God a house. You know, just like I've got this nice place to live, he should have one too. So the prophet goes to God, and he says, hey, this is what David wants to do. And God says, thanks, but no thanks. So go back and tell David this. So that's what the prophet does. He goes back, and he tells him, look, this is what God said. You're a man of war, and I don't want you to be the one to build me a temple, but I really appreciate the gesture. So instead of you building me a house, like a physical house, he says he's a play on words, right? I'm going to build you a house, meaning like uh, a dynasty. And so uh, through that uh, dynasty comes uh, the Messiah. That's what's been promised. And so Jesus is going to be that promised Davidic king. And that's a huge theme in the book of Luke and Acts, is connecting Jesus to that promise from 2 Samuel chapter 7. So we're going to read a lot about, oh, the house of David, this from David. And I'm going to tell that same story uh, maybe a hundred times here as we read through the book of Luke. So let's keep going. Verse 71. Um, So he spoke of the mouth of the prophets from old. Verse 71, that 
we should be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all who hate us. So in the Bible, as we read some of these prophecies, one of the things we have to understand is that a lot of these prophecies have levels to them. So um, these levels, what I mean by that is there's an immediate fulfillment, there's like a medium fulfillment, there's an ultimate fulfillment, right? Like it's like steps almost. The same prophecy can apply to a couple of different things. And that's how a lot of the prophecy in the Bible works. So the Bible is full of prophecies about salvation from our enemies. So on the one level, the first, like the basic level, that's really what it means. It's individual or corporate for folks like David or for the nation of Israel, right? Um, so it's kind of those two levels, actually, is there's like an individual level, there's a corporate level of just actual deliverance from this guy says he's going to destroy the people of Israel. This king says he's going to destroy me, King David. So the, there's that level. But then there's the next level, which is the freedom from sin that we experience, right? Sin is our enemy. And God says, just like I defeated those enemies for King David back then, I'm going to defeat sin for you. But then there's the ultimate level, which is the defeat of the enemy, the devil, that we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And one of the, whole, one of the major themes throughout the whole Bible is the destruction of the kingdom of Satan, especially one of my favorite books, the book of Revelation, uh, talks a lot about that. So um, next thing Zechariah is praising God for is that he is going to do that, right? He's going to defeat uh, the enemies, but he's probably talking about it on all those different levels. Verse 72. To show mercy, the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, he'll continue that in a sec. So in Hebrew poetry, what they used to do was they would rhyme ideas, not words. And this is Greek. I know that uh, Luke wrote in Greek, but he's picking up one of those things from the Old Testament where you basically say the same thing twice. And that seems to be his influence here. It's taken from these songs, right? These lines are parallel. First, God has always showed mercy to our fathers. Second, he did it by remembering his covenant with them. So they never deserved to be the people of God. But when, um, even when they were rebelling, right, God still loved them. We talked about that a lot last week. And we talked about Hosea and the unfaithful wife and that imagery. And so Zechariah remembers this. And he remembers, though, also that this love of the father, right? What God has done for his people then calls them to service. Look at verse 74, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. So the goal of all of this, then what Zechariah is praising God for is to serve him as the Lord, to live as he would have his people live in holiness and in righteousness, right? God's people are to be set apart. They're supposed to be different. And so as Zechariah is looking at all this wonderful stuff about God, he's saying, and then here's the way that we can respond to that is by lovingly serving him. Um, verse 76, he keeps going. Now he shifts the 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 um, song is just generally talking about things that he's praising God for. He shifts specifically now uh, to talk about this son of his who was just born. So verses um, 76 and 77. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation uh, to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So now John is his call. What is John going to be? He's going to be a prophet. Now, the role of a prophet, especially in the Old Testament, um, and John really is the last great Old Testament prophet. When we think of prophecy, we think, oh, these are the guys that predict the future. But that's not all that they did. Most of what the prophets did was just, they were like uh, messengers for God. They were the mouthpiece of God. And so God would empower a prophet to speak, and that prophet would send a message to the people of God. 
it, a lot of times what that message was was something more like judgment. Um, sometimes it was a message of salvation. Sometimes it was something else. But usually it was just a, um, it wasn't just predicting the future is what I want you to see. And so John is going to be one of those messengers. Well, what will his message be? He's going to give the knowledge of salvation, right? And talk about this, this um, forgiveness of sins. This is what Jesus has come to do, is to save his people and to free them from the power of sin. And John's job then is going to be to get the people ready for the coming salvation, for the coming king. And that's why it says that he's going to go before the Lord um, and prepare the way. This is a quote from the end of the Old Testament. Let me actually flip back and read this. Um, in the book of uh, Malachi, wait, give me one second to find this. Do, 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 Zechariah, Malachi 3.1. It says this, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So that's from Malachi 3.1. It's a prophecy. And it, that prophecy, what it was saying is that before the king comes, there's going to be one to come and prepare the way. And it was just picking up something that was very common um, in the Near Eastern world at this time, where a king would come to a city, but before the king would come, he would send a messenger in front of him to tell everybody, hey, I'm coming to this city. Uh, and then that person would get everything ready for the arrival. Um, it's a lot like now. I watched this whole thing a few years ago. It was absolutely fascinating about how the president travels and what a huge ordeal it is for the president to travel and how they have to send, um, you know, he has his big giant limo, uh, that's all bulletproof and bombproof and all that stuff. And they have to they have a few of these and they have to send them to the different cities so that everything can be ready. And it's just this huge ordeal. That's kind of what he's saying is that John is going to be the person that sort of goes before the president and blocks off the streets and books the hotels and does whatever he needs to do to get everybody ready for what's coming next. And in John's case, what's coming next is amazing. It's a light in the darkness. This is my favorite part of this psalm. Or it's not a psalm, this song. Um, and really one of my favorite parts of the whole book of Luke is these two verses, verse 78 and 79. It says this, because, um, so uh, in verse 77, I'll start a little earlier, to give a knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So he talks about, Zechariah talks here about this light and darkness. Um, like I said, this is my favorite part of this song. It's this image that's picked up from the Old Testament. Darkness is used in the Old Testament, especially in two different ways. Um, the first is it talks about like you're in darkness as in you're in ignorance and error. You just don't know what you're supposed to be doing or you're doing it and it's wrong, right? So that's the first way, just like people are in darkness. The second way it talks about darkness, though, is to talk about the realm where Satan rules. Now, both of those describe the world that we're in now, where people are living in darkness and ignorance and sin, but it's also the rule, uh, the, the place where Satan is getting his way. And so in the midst of that darkness, right, this, this fallen and this dark world, there's this imagery throughout the Bible that into that darkness then has come the light. And this theme starts in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Isaiah. Let me read you a couple of verses from Isaiah. The first is Isaiah 9, chapter 2. It says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has a light shone. 
that's such a that's such a cool verse. Actually, one of that's one of my favorite verses because there's a, um, a song from Handel's Messiah about that verse. Um, and then Isaiah 60 verses two and three, a little bit later in the book of Isaiah. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, uh, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to brightness. Sorry. Uh, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. It's such a beautiful picture that in the middle of this light, all of a sudden, this darkness, all of a sudden the light shines. Um, I'll tell you a story. I'm pretty afraid of bears. I don't like bears. Bears are huge. I saw the Revenant where the thing was squishing that bear's head or that guy's head. The bear was squishing that guy's head. I'm terrified of bears even before I saw the Revenant. And back in the day when I was a youth pastor, we used to take these trips every summer, every August. I hate the first week of August because of these trips. And we would take the kids up to uh, Lake Tahoe and there's a campsite up uh, just a few, you know, a hundred yards from the beach there in Tahoe. And um, there are a lot of bears in these campsites. Now, they're friendly little campsite bears, but they're still bears, right? And I remember the first time I saw a bear. I was sitting at a campfire. There was me, one other leader, um, and uh, um, Chris Warren's little brother, Patrick. And we were sitting there, and then all, we were kind of in the corner of the campsite, and I heard a rustling. It was the middle of the night. We were sitting around a campfire, and then all of a sudden, this bear came um, through the bushes, and it was maybe 10 feet from me. I grabbed Patrick, the kid, and I ran, and we got in the van, and I left the other leader to be eaten by a bear and die. He was on his own. Um, so the thing about this is these bears showed up almost every year. They would go through our stuff. The kids all knew the bear drills. You know, run, get in the van, or, you know, walk briskly, get in the van. Uh, don't leave any food in your tents. I, By the way, I had a kid come up to me one day, like three or four days into this camping trip, and say, hey, John, you know how we're not supposed to have food in our tents? Does beef jerky count? wanted to be like, kid, are you trying to get eaten by a bear? Anyway, so as these bears would show up at night, here's the thing. It was me and a bunch of, a couple of leaders usually, and a lot of kids. And I was the one who was in charge of scaring the bear away. If anybody in that group was going to get eaten by a bear, it was going to be me, right? I was sort of the top of the food chain that way. And so I had to make sure everybody else was safe. And so, but secretly, I hate these bears and I'm terrified of them. And so, like, I remember one time I called the ranger and he came by and he was, I was shining my light. We were looking for this bear that had come through our campsite. And I was shining my light down. And he was walking next to me, shining his light up in the trees. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, well, um, you know, when they see my truck, they run up the trees. And I said, hold on, wait, bears climb trees? Like, I, I didn't know. I guess I never really thought about that. And so now here I am thinking a bear is going to fall out of a tree and land on me. And so you can imagine I was always pretty on edge during these camping trips when the sun went down. As the darkness came, the bears came out. We could hear them walking around our tents sometimes at night. It was absolutely terrifying. And so I would lay in my tent, right, looking just at the shadows and everything. Uh, couldn't wait for the sun to rise. I could not wait for morning to come because it meant I had survived another night in Bear Valley or whatever, you know, in bear country. Um, even though they're campsite bears and, you know, you could probably walk up and pet one. They're so used to people. It's still terrifying. And so I remember that feeling of waking up in the morning and being like, oh, thank goodness, I can finally rest, right? The light is here and there's no more bears. The darkness is gone. So that's the image here that Zachariah is talking about, except he's saying it's a thousand times more than John and the bears, right? The world is in darkness, lost in sin. 
And the coming of Jesus is like the sun coming up over the eastern horizon. And you see that light just start to come. Now, let me tell you three specific things about the light that he says. First, the light is visiting us. Now, um, this is what we're going to talk about next week when Jesus is born. God visiting us in the person of Jesus Christ. So I'm going to kind of skip over that one. We're going to talk about how does that happen. Second, though, the light is for those in the darkness specifically. So... This is going to be another major part of the book of Luke is the light is not for people who already think they're in the light, right? Jesus has come. This light is for those who are in darkness. Um, that's where it makes sense. Um, the whole book of Luke is Jesus fighting with the religious leaders who've written off whole groups of people. And Jesus basically says, no, I'm the light and I'm here to shine light into the darkness, right? That's why I'm here. Um, and then the third thing is the light. It says it guides our feet into the way of peace. So everybody knows, um, sorry, everybody is seeking, I guess we would say, some sort of peace. We want this rest from our, what's really going on is we want rest from our war and our rebellion against God. And we try all these different things in our lives to make that happen. And all these other religions are even uh, built on trying to find that, uh, find that peace. Uh, we don't know how to get there, right? We're lost. We can't find our way. We're stumbling around in the darkness. And so what this verse says is that God has now come to show us the path, right? It's like that verse from Psalm 119. You know, your word is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. That's what Jesus has come to do. And that's the imagery, this wonderful imagery. These two verses, two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible is how this uh, this song ends with uh, this this. So the song, if you look at the, the way it's organized, there's praise for what God has done for Zechariah. There's a little bit in the middle there where he's talking to John. And then he says, this is what you're going to do, John. You're going to get everybody ready for this wonderful dawn that's coming, this light that's um, just around the corner. Um, and so that's going to be the job of this mighty prophet, the last of the Old Testament prophets. And so then we read he was um, born and circumcised at the beginning of our passage. And then it closes with this in verse 80. And the child grew, and he became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. Um, so John now grows up, and he lives in the wilderness. Um, there are some wildly outlandish theories about what happens between, you know, here and when John shows up. Where was he in the wilderness? Did he live with the, the Dead Sea Scrolls? All this stuff. Well, we're not really going to speculate because it doesn't say. We don't know a lot about the life of John, except the stuff that the Bible says we need to know. And so we know he lived in the wilderness. We're going to leave him there. We're going to catch up with him later. And so that's our passage, right? Is this wonderful song that now Zechariah has written following the wonderful song that Mary has written. So let me just real quick give you sort of the historical setting for this song, right? A lot of songs only make sense when you know, um, you know, some songs are stupid, just love songs that apply anywhere. But a lot of songs you actually have to know uh, what this song was written about for it to make any sort of sense, right? Like, think about, um, what's that song, Bye Bye Miss American Pie? You know, you know what that song is actually about. It's about, um, you know, the day the music died when Buddy Holly's plane crashed. You know, there's a whole historical setting there. Well, it's the same with this song of Zechariah. There's this historical setting, and I, I want to tell it to you now. For a thousand years up to this point, the people of Israel have been waiting for that new David, the promised Messiah, right? The king of Israel. And king after king after king came and went and didn't live up to the hype. Um, the hype. But all along, these prophets, 
would show up and they would predict that he was still coming and that he was going to put everything back together. When this king finally comes, things are going to be okay. The light is coming, right? The light is coming to shine in the darkness. And so this anticipation was building, right? So look at some of these prophets. I'll read to you from uh, Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king, and he will deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. So in the exile, so this happens, and then the people, they end up in exile. But even in exile, right, the the prophets showed up like Daniel and Ezekiel, and they kept saying, look, guys, the Messiah is still coming. But what happened after this, they came home from exile, and there was one or two more prophets for a couple of years. But then there was this long silence. Over 400 years, there were no prophets from the Lord. But still, the anticipation grew, and it grew, and it grew. And people were hopeful, and they were waiting and longing for this Messiah. And then with the coming of the Romans, coming into Israel, it's kind of a long story how that happened, uh, but they came and they took over the land of Israel and swallowed up Israel into this Roman Empire. And the people then were desperate for the promise of God to come true, because so many people thought that what was going to happen is that the Messiah was going to come in and he was going to set himself up as an earthly king, defeat the Romans, and then another era like the era of Solomon would begin in the nation of Israel. And so to give you an idea, a few years, um, just right around the time of Jesus, I guess, a few years right after Jesus was born, but while he was still a young boy, um, there was a king, Herod the Great's son, Archelaus. Um, He had this fight with the Jewish establishment, and they pushed for some reforms in the nation, and he pushed back, and it all came to a head during a Passover in Jerusalem. And Archelaus, he sent in his armies, and they killed thousands of Jewish folks. And as a result, these little revolts popped up all over the nation of Israel, and a whole bunch of these revolts were led by people who claimed to be the Messiah. So I'll tell you about a few of them. There was Judas, the son of Ezekias. So this guy gathered a bunch of robbers and they took over a palace in Galilee before they were finally defeated. Um, There was Simon, um, who was a slave of Herod the Great. Uh, He gathered an army and he started calling himself a king. He burnt down a royal palace in Jericho. He burnt down a bunch of Herod uh, Archelaus's country homes. Um, The Roman the Romans ended up sending some soldiers to stop him, and there was this fierce battle, and he escaped that battle, but just a few, like a little while later, he was captured and beheaded. But that whole time, he was calling himself the Messiah. He was saying, I'm the one who's going to defeat the Romans, and I'm going to kick the Romans out, and I'm going to set up my kingdom. Or there was another one. I have no idea how to say this guy's name. Athrongis, Athrongas, whatever. Um, he was a shepherd, and he had four brothers. And these these guys, they raised up an army. They caused a bunch of mayhem. And eventually, though, they too, just like the rest of them, were crushed in a violent oppression by the Romans. Um, Josephus, writing about this era, who was this um, uh, first century historian, Jewish historian, writing about the era of messianic hope, he said this, And thus did a great and wild fury spread itself over the nation because they had no king to keep the multitude in good order, right? So this went on and on and on. This was the era of messianic hope. And there was actually a whole bunch more. I could have talked about a ton of these guys. So those were all kind of clustered in the same area. After Jesus, though, there was a whole bunch of other guys who thought um, that 
uh, they were the Messiah. And they started telling everybody as um, started telling everybody that they were the Messiah. Um, here's the thing that I want you to see. You have never longed for anything in your entire life the way that these people longed for the coming of the Messiah. As a nation, this was their identity, waiting for the Messiah, looking forward to that Messiah with hope. Um, the closest that we've really seen or experienced here in San Francisco to something like this is when the Giants were in the World Series in 2010. Now, most of us here who grew up here, we grew up Giants fans, and we thought we are never going to see the Giants win a World Series. I barely remember, but I do have flashes of memory of them losing the series in 1989 when I was five. Um, I remember uh, 1990, what was it, three? The Solomon Torres game. Right, I remember signing Barry Bonds. Right, I have a baseball card in the other room where we had Bonds, Matt Williams, Will Clark, all on the same team. Right, that '93 team that didn't win a World Series. I remember 2002 when we lost the World Series, and I was on an airplane during Game Seven, and we landed, and the pilot got on the thing, and he said, "Hey, it's 65 and foggy in San Francisco. Oh, and the Giants lost. Click, and that was it. And the plane erupted. People were so mad, screaming, "What was the score?" That sort of a thing, right? We had this hope. We loved the Giants. We really wanted them to win. Um, and we've been waiting, you know, what was it at this point? 50-something years with no World Series. We were the third longest drought. Um, but then things changed suddenly in 2010, right? Do you remember this? Um, you know, Lincecum and Kane and, you know, the young Mad Bum and all these guys, uh, Cody Ross and everybody, you know, these guys became national, like not national, but, you know, citywide heroes. And buildings were lit up orange. Every restaurant had giant stuff up, right? It was all that anybody talked about. It, we became the city of the giants for that time, and we were longing for that World Series. That's the level of anticipation here with the longing for this Messiah. But imagine now it's been a thousand years of waiting for something like this. And it's not just a stupid baseball game. It's, it's national identity was waiting for this Messiah. And so now that wait, that, that longing, that hope, uh, that era is here, and Zechariah knows it. And so he knows now that this new covenant has begun. He knows that the birth of his miracle son, the forerunner, marks the beginning of a whole new age, the age of the Messiah. And this is what he's so excited about at the birth of his son and in the writing of this song. But there's actually more here too. You see, Zechariah um, didn't quite seem to have those same political expectations of the Messiah that everybody else seemed to have. In verses, uh, sorry, in uh, verse 77, it says this, to give knowledge of the salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. <clears throat> you see, everybody was hoping for a little, right? Their national hope was that somebody would come free us from Rome. They were hoping for something small in the grand scheme of things. And what God gave them was huge way more than a political Messiah, way more than political freedom. Zacharias says that these people now are going to receive uh, forgiveness from sins, right? The Messiah would bring freedom from the weight of sin that is crushing his people. And the anticipation that leads to this Messiah, what they're going to get is this, the Savior from sin. And Zechariah knew it. And that's what this whole song is actually about, is celebrating God's faithfulness to his promise. So what does this mean for us? Well, we live in a post-resurrection time, right? We live in a time where we can look back at this with joy, right? We have more of the story than even Zechariah had. But the, here's the deal, right? The story isn't over. There's another age coming, the fullness of the kingdom of God. 
we can look at this text and say God was faithful to bring uh, his people uh, peace and the light in the dawn, right? He was faithful to bring this light into the darkness for his people. And um, it seemed like for them, for this waiting, for this thousand years, it seemed like a really long time to wait. But when God finally shows up in the person of Jesus, the people get way more than what they were anticipating. Well, here's the thing, right, is um, in this time, the people of God were waiting for the first coming of the Messiah. And you know what? He did show up. He came. He, he lived. He died. He rose again. And he collected his people into the church. And then he ascended back into heaven and he left his people with another promise. And that promise was this. Look, just like I came the first time, I'm coming back a second time. So live your life like it could happen at any moment. But here's the sad fact, though, is that uh, these Jewish folks in the first century, although a lot of them were misguided in what they were hoping for with a political Messiah, they had a far greater sense of anticipation waiting for the promise of God to be fulfilled than we do as a church as we wait for the second coming. They were more excited with less information and we're less excited with more information. Why is that? Well, I think a lot of it is just because we're comfortable right? We have it so easy, most of us, um, that we've lost any sense of urgency about this promise. So think about that. How much time do you spend uh, thinking about the coming kingdom of God on earth? How much time do you spend thinking about eternity? How much time do you spend longing for Jesus's, uh, Jesus to return, right? The earliest church, the earliest church, right, they had this crazy anticipation for the second coming of Jesus. As you read, um, as you read the, the church fathers or any of that sort of stuff, um, you see, man, these people just couldn't wait for Jesus to come back. And then even the second to last verse in the Bible, in Revelation twenty two twenty, it says, As he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the Bible ends, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Right? That's the kind of anticipation that we're supposed to have, and we don't. Right now, I'm recording this sermon in my office, right, at home, because we can't be together as a church. This is the situation we're in. The world is in the midst of this global pandemic, and one of the things that we, uh, we consistently see, though, in Scripture is how God is in control and can even use terrible times to accomplish His purposes. And so one of my prayers um, is that he would do the same thing even in the midst of something as terrible as this coronavirus that's killing people all over the world. Um, it's, it's awful what's happening. And um, like I heard some horror stories from hospitals in Italy and different stuff. And, um, you know, it really, I don't want to say that this is a good time. But what I will say is I believe that God can use this to accomplish one of his purposes. And I think one of the things that he can do is to shake up his people, his comfortable people here in American church where we have this sense of complacency, we have this sense of comfort, we don't take his word seriously, and we don't live with that sort of longing. And hopefully, what we're all starting to see is that the world is a bit more fragile than we once thought it was, right? Hopefully, we're starting to wake up and see what the world really needs, the full and complete realization of the kingdom of God that will happen when he comes back the second time, right? In the first coming, 
of Jesus was the beginning of his kingdom. But what he said is it's not all the way here yet. The kingdom, we're in the already, but not yet. The kingdom is coming and that's going to happen when he comes back. And because of that, then we, his people who live in this in-between period, the already, but not yet, we are not defeated by the circumstances around us. For Zechariah, it was the Roman occupation, and it was the brutality of the age that he lived in. For us, it's the coronavirus and the effects of that coronavirus, right? The sickness, the death, the economic uh, depression, unemployment, loneliness. Um, There's all this stuff that's happening. And so what we need is hope. For Zechariah, that hope was realized at the birth of his son, the forerunner to uh, to Jesus, the Messiah. For us, our hope comes from uh, his second coming. Uh, the, the kingdom has not been fully realized yet, but we know that he, it will be. God is faithful. Jesus really is coming back. And when he does, what he's going to do is he is going to put the world back together. And so until then, until that happens, as we live in this darkness, uh, we live in this world of darkness, we try to live into the reality that the light is just around the corner. Right? We, we try to live like we believe um, that the upside down kingdom is here, but it's not fully realized. And so we serve and we love people because the king who came uh, to this earth uh, in the person of Jesus Christ, he came to serve uh, and love that king. He's on his way back. Right? We sacrifice because the king who sacrificed himself is on his way back. Right now, much of the world is void of hope. Corona has really shaken things up. And what the church has to offer the world is hope, right? The light is coming. The dawn is just around the corner. And we want them to see the hope that we have in our lives. And we want them to see how that hope in our lives causes us to love and to serve them. And hopefully then our friends and our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, everybody around us will see that hope in our lives and they will surrender their lives to the Lord um, that we know is on his way back.